<laughs> oh, we're just sliding past 7 o'clock. You know what that means. It's time for Iron Sports. This is 95.9, the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and we're real excited tonight, Ira. It's going to be one of our biggest shows ever. So much to cover, and we love once we're deep in the playoffs. And you were um, neck deep in the playoffs this week, and probably the most important person in all of media right now you got to see on the court. James Harden? No, I met Amelia Clark, who you saw at the Rockets game. They, it was a big deal. I didn't know who she was. Um, <laughs> Jay, I mean, it was pretty. It was starstruck because it was uh, Jay Z and Beyonce on one side of her, and then the owner of the Rockets, and then she was across. That was she was like four seats away. So, but they made a big deal about that. I mean, there weren't that many celebrities at the Houston game, but you have Jay Z, Beyonce, and then the mother. I guess for the Mother's Day, Happy Mother's Day, everyone. The mother of all dragons. I guess yeah. that's what she is. She's the in the game. But of course, what I'm going to say is I think the Houston fans, as like their team, were pathetic. They got to the game late. Um, they had no enthusiasm. You could hear sneakers. It was 19 rows up. I could hear the sneakers. I could have been at a gym at uh, a local high school watching yeah. a game. And they left early. Even when it was it was not like this, the, the uh, end of the game was it, decided. It was never, yeah, it was never decided. Right. And they were all leaving the game. But Jay-Z, Beyonce, and that mother of dragons, they were all <laughs> there the whole game. Khaleesi, Cenarius Targaryen. She's the biggest person in the world. You saw her live. Didn't really know who it was because you're not a Game of Thrones guy. But we'll, we'll get you into that. And also, I want to talk more about this game in just a minute, but huge show. And, and anybody who's read, uh, read an article on the internet for the past decade knows Dan Wetzel. Maybe you don't know the name, but you've definitely read some of his works. Tell us about Dan, Ira. He's one of the best writers uh, out there. Uh, he, it's just tremendous in terms of he's been working for Yahoo for years. Uh, he has wrote movies. He did a full-length documentary on Aaron Hernandez. Uh, he wrote a book called The Death of BCS. And the reason we're having him on is he's writing all these epic sports store series with Steph Curry, Alex Morgan, Serena Williams, Tom Brady. These are not children's books, but young adult books. Mm -hmm. And it's great when you have a writer like he does and he applies to it because you want kids to read. And it's great when you're reading about Steph Curry. I read the books this weekend and I like Liked him. I mean, I don't see that. Like, I didn't feel like there was juvenile books. I, mean, I was enjoying <laughs> reading the book. So, I mean, I just finished a Bob Woodward book, and compared to this, it was sim similar. But I'd love to have Dan on the show. He's probably the one of the most knowledgeable persons about uh, be about college basketball, pro basketball, anything. He's really great. And we have a lot of questions to ask. Extremely talented writer uh, for Yahoo Sports, and also um, you know does this thing independently. Of course, Dan Wetzel joins us here on Iron Sports at seven twenty. Then at seven fifty, you know, we had to bring him back on. It's Mikey Everone and. I don't want to say that I was really mad when I lost a bunch of money on Long Range Toddy Ira, but he was set up to win that race until Maximum Security uh, pulled that DQ. I'm sure you were watching it, and you must have been rooting on Toddy down the stretch just like me. Yeah, as we said last week, I thought Long Range Toddy uh, was in a good position, even though he was running Great pretty, pretty fast. And But it'll be interesting to see what he says about the Preakness. The Preakness is the first time in 50 years that you don't have the top three uh, finishers in the Kentucky Derby that are running the Preakness. Uh, some people say there's not going to be a lot of enthusiasm for this. However, uh, people like to have a party. It's the Preakness, and they're going to watch it and bet it. I think you're right, though. It is a little bit weird. I think it's the first time since 1996 Grindstone was the uh, horse that was the last one that didn't run after winning the Kentucky Derby. I've got a theory on that. I'm going to run it by uh, Mike Everone right about 7:50. Okay, Eric, start it off. Where have you been? You already kind of told us, but give give us the. I can't imagine, or 
actually, you know, talking to you off air, I, I thought I couldn't imagine what the atmosphere would be in Houston for arguably the biggest game in their franchise's history. And it just wasn't that for you? Uh, there was no enthusiasm. I mean, they had a mechanical bull outside the stadium and um, uh, the it wasn't even working. I, people were trying to get on. It wasn't working. There were people just milling about and you would go into the arena and uh, I was there an hour and a half because I want to see Curry warm up and Harden warm up and Durant warm up. I love their warm ups, And you can assume that no one's going to be there. But there's like 10 minutes before the game and it was empty. And then five minutes before the game empty. When they, when they tipped off, it was empty. The fans were not in the game. The fan, the play, it just seems like they were like they almost saw what was coming. Or it was just they were not happy about this team. I was there last year for Game Seven, and there was a lot more enthusiasm. But this was, and then as I said earlier, they walked. The fans left early. They they got there late. They left early, and they just weren't into the game at all. And it was surprising, and I think that helped the Warriors because they saw they were enjoying the fact that they were really keeping the fans out of the game. How do you think, or why do you think that was? This was one of the most um, overbet games that I've ever met. Every single person that you talked to was like, well, it's a foregone conclusion. The Rockets will win this one. First game without KD. Do you think that the people and the fans of Houston just overlooked the game and just thought they were automatically going to win? I can't believe the atmosphere would be that way. I don't know. I was surprised, and I couldn't figure it out, and I think the fans are really mad at this team and the the, the failures that they've had. Maybe in the back of their mind they thought this team was going to fail, and, and you could see the owner at the end of the game. He left with a minute to go. He just stood up and Tillman left. And Fertitta, was, yeah. He was furious. I mean, he just spent $2.2 billion on a team. He's frustrated. Uh, they were. There was. It was it, this team. I mean, the fact is, uh, look, I've had to deal with James Harden this whole year, and the one thing I don't <laughs> like about – the Rockets, I don't like about James Harden is I cannot stand the three-point shot. I can't stand watching games, and all they do is shoot the three-point shot. And I keep hearing Max Kellerman go on ESPN, he goes, well, the threes, more than two. Threes, more than two. Well, yeah, but if you're making the threes, but if you're shooting 10% from threes, or 5% yeah. from threes, and even 20% from threes, it's better to make the mid-range two. And I just hate watching basketball whether you're going to take a layup or shoot a three. And then how Harden plays where it's just dribble, dribble, dribble for 24 seconds, and then shoot the ball. And I think it's destroying basketball. So it's almost I was so thankful that the Warriors who actually invented the shooting the three were able to slay the dragon the mother of all dragons and I'm going to go back to that and were able to slay this team because it was just I, I'm so frustrated with how they were able and also having hearing I know Harden's great I know he's amazing I know all this other stuff in the regular season but I don't think we've ever seen a player come up so small now I'm not saying that he did terrible in the games but in the fourth quarter in the moments that counted he did not make the plays and I think that's what made that's what so that this was so classic and I called it one of the best games in NBA history because you saw the great champion the Warriors they'll be all time great they are without their leader Durant they're out with cousins the two of their five players weren't there and, mm -hmm. and they came and they brought the old gang back Bogut who played with them for five years ago Iguodala Livingston of course Curry and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson and they were able to pull this out they were eight point underdogs Eight points. Yeah, so it was the biggest betting swing I've ever seen against Golden State. Everyone was convinced we're going to game seven. It's just an automatic thing, and it didn't happen. Want to hear something funny? Last um, five December NBA players of the month, Harden, Westbrook, Harden, Westbrook, Harden. <laughs> and what has December done for anybody past that? Absolutely nothing. And that's, you know, I think that's kind of why you hate him at the same time as you um, respect him because he just never gets anything done. And, and that's what the Rockets are now. They're a perennial just failure. Well, and Tony might fall on the sword for this. 2013 Rockets lost to Thunder 4 2. 
Durant versus Harden that year because Westbrook was injured. The next mm. year, the Rockets lost to the Blazers. This is with Harden. They lost 4-2. Then the Rockets lost to the Warriors in 2015, 4-1 in the conference finals. In the final game, Harden was 2-11. 2016, the Rockets lost to the Warriors again in the first round, 4-1. In the 2017, they lost to the Spurs without Kawhi Leonard. Harden still had a horrendous game. They lost by 40 in their final game at home. Mm. 2018, the Rockets lose to the Warriors 4-3. That was last year in the conference finals. And again, Harden was terrible in the, in the seventh game, in the, in the final game. He was two for 13 on threes. And again, he loses. Now, this is how many years in a row? Because he have to keep losing. And I would say, oh, the Warriors are so great. But he doesn't come up great. And here's a guy that's not just a good player. Look at his scoring averages. 26, 26, 27, 29, 29, 30.4, 36.1. 36.1, that seems like a lot of points. Do you know only four people have ever scored, or actually two people have ever scored more than that in a season? Will Chamberlain and Michael Jordan. Crazy. I mean, he's had a ridiculously amazing year. He's been in the MVP, their first or second. He's going to be the next, last four years, and he's done nothing. And he's done nothing. Has been unable to win these games. And I, we all put him at this high pedestal. And I just, I'm calling him Clayton Kershaw because a person who has had this great regular season success, but in the playoffs is just this spotty. Now it's it just terrible, especially in the fourth quarter when it counts. You know, it's funny that that's probably the best analogy I've ever heard. Calling him Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw is. That, he's a stat machine. Well, maybe not the past two years so much with injuries. But before that, he did everything that you could possibly ask for and, you know, won Cy Young Awards. But when it comes down to it, he could never get it done in the playoffs, whether he was hurt, whether the team wasn't supporting him and he was just getting, you know, blown up because uh, he, he left one run but lost because the other team shut them out. Regardless, they kind of have a very similar path here through their careers so far, Ira. They're both Hall of Famers. But both have never been able to knock it down. Well, the argument could be the Bulls and Jordan lost to the Pistons 88 and 90 and 89 and 90. But they were able to get through and, uh, and, and go uh, certainly get through them. Pistons lost to Celtics three times and were able to get through. The Warriors themselves lost to San Antonio and the Clippers. But this looks like longer than this. This looks like they really, so the question is, do you break it up? Do you whatever? But there comes a time where they're just not going to get it done. And, 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 and Harden could win in two years and win a title and be called a champion. But he's viewed, I, I said, who's the fraud? Who, who's, who's been hurt most by these playoffs? And the two people are Kyrie Irving for the Celtics and James Harden for the, for the Rockets. I mean, Embiid and Simmons, because they lost to Philadelphia. Look, they took seven games. They're also 22 and 21 They've years old. Hard and they fought the hard and they have a chance and they're younger. But right now, the two and Westbrook, those three Westbrook, Harden, and uh, and Kyrie Irving were tremendous losers, and that's what I love about the NBA. So, the NBA, unlike these other sports, is like Kershaw could say, Well, I didn't pitch well, but it's my team, and this and this. Boy, the NBA, it's all about you. And it's not like, oh, you're quarterback of a football team and your defense lets you down. It's like you control the game. And that's what I love about the sport. It's a team sport, but the superstars are viewed as great and that they can control what happens. And the pressure's on them. And when they go against another superstar, they're judged on how well they perform. It's 716. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is 95.9, the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, a famous, uh, famous um, article columnist and uh, just a mentor to me growing up with all the amazing uh, you know, advice that he gave me following sports. Dan Wetzel from Yahoo Sports uh, joins us in about four minutes here on Iron Sports. Um, so you made a great point there, Ira. When you're James Harden, everything depends on you. It's not like Clayton Kershaw where he can get off and, and say, well, my team didn't hit that day. Everything's on James Harden's back. And this is now, what, four times that he's taken a team and not been able to get anything accomplished with it. it. I said before, D'Antoni falls on the sword, maybe. 
or is it just time to shake something up? I heard today that they should be contacting um, the 76ers to try to make a trade, trade Chris Paul for anything. To, to just shake this up a little bit, what would you do if you're Tillman Fertitta <laughs> running the Rockets? I don't think there's not much they can do because they're not getting rid of Harden, of course. And and Chris Paul is owed $125 million over the next three years. That's a good He's point. one of the highest contracts in sports. It's going to be hard. They're just going to have to figure out complementary parts around it that work better and maybe change the coach. That would be the only thing I could think of him doing is changing the coach and change the system and trying to free up because for, it's just not working. Um, I mean, even uh, even in game four when they won, uh, they were up 110-105. Harden misses a shot. Green gets the rebound. Harden misses another shot with 30 seconds to go. Uh, and then at the end of the game, they that's when that was the game that Durant missed a three and Curry came back to Curry and Curry missed a three. That would have tied the game. like that. They could have been lost that game. And that's when Harden, that's the game they won. And then in game five was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's the one where they came, where they, uh, where uh, where they came back to uh, uh, to Golden State, and Durant gets injured. So now you're playing a quarter and a half. That with, should have been a win. Without, when Kevin Durant, and when he looked at injured, wasn't those injuries like, oh, you hope he can return? Anyone who saw that injury said he looks like he tore his Achilles. You assumed Achilles, yeah. Like he's gonna be out next year, not just come back. And I was amazed at how they were able to hang in there to that game. And then at the end of the game, with seven minutes to go, Harden came out of the game. He came back. The moment he came back, the Warriors were up 82-81. Harden turns the ball over, and then he didn't shoot from the seven-minute mark until 18 seconds left in the game. Now, how in the world does the guy who scores 36 points in a game not <laughs> score? And it was, it was one, uh, one play. Uh, um, he was lazy walking up the court, and they were looking to throw in the ball, but they couldn't because he was backcourt. I mean, I, I watched that fourth quarter again. It was just horrendous. He finished with 31 points, eight assists, and four steals, but it was just a terrible game from him, and the fact is that the Warriors were able to hold on uh, and to win the game. I mean, uh, it was just to, to, you know, Curry had 25, Godala 11, and Thompson 27. And then we go into the, and uh, we'll probably talk about the game six, which I think is one of the most amazing games of all time after, after Dan's on the phone, but after we talk to Dan. But uh, just a terrible loss, terrible performance by Harden. And uh, I was just, it, it was great to be there to see it because I, it showed you how amazing Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and the heart of the champion of the whole team at Godala Green. When they knew they didn't have Durant, they knew they were eight point underdogs and they did not want to say, oh, this is it. We're just going to roll over and go to, they don't want to play a game seven. Mm -hmm. They want to win in game six. It, it's interesting, you know, you brought it up to me saying that this is probably or arguably the most significant non-finals game of all time. And it really was. We've seen them go to the uh, Western Conference Finals, and it wasn't as much on the line to me as there was in that game. With KD out, this is your time, Harden. Step up, win this game. And that's why it was an eight-point line that obviously didn't come to fruition. And you know if you're the Rockets, the next team you play is either Portland or Denver that you're going to be a heavy favorite on either of those teams. And you know on the East, there's no LeBron James. There's no LeBron James in the Cavaliers. This, it, was, it, was, it was paved. You have no, Duran is out. You have no LeBron. You have Portland or Denver to win, and you're going to be champions. And they couldn't get it done. It's 720. This is Ira on Sports, 95.9, the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. It's time to bring in Dan Wetzel, author, screenwriter, uh, national columnist for Yahoo Sports and Yahoo.com. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. And I, I, I kind of hyped you up a little bit before. Um, I've been just, you know, reading your articles for years and years online and gotten so much good advice from you. So thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. Thank you for having me. Hope you're doing well tonight. We are doing well. Ira, what do you have for Dan? Dan, uh, we we're bringing you on because, first of all, I 
the first book report I wrote, I think I was in third grade, was <laughs> it was on Fran Tarkington. And Fran Tarkington, who our listeners don't know, is a great quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. And since then, I've gone to uh, undergrad, I've gone to law school, and I wrote a lot of book reports in my life. But I, I remember my first, <laughs> but I, I've been a voracious reader. And the fact is that I love reading. And I think it's great that you have these books, a series of books, and, and the Steph Curry book, Alex Morgan, Serena Williams, Tom Brady's coming out. Books are meant for eight to 12 year olds. Or, I mean, I read the book, so I think anybody can read this book. But I think it's great that you're getting, you're giving a reason for kids to read. So they don't just play uh, video games or do nothing or watch that YouTube on TV, but actually learn how to read, enjoy reading. And I've already got promised this book to like four people I know that are kids, and they're excited to read about it. We write about interesting topics that kids want to read. So I think it's very important what you're doing by, by having this epic series of books that you put out. Well, thank you. Um, I, you know, I have kids myself. Uh, my sister's a, a middle school librarian, um, and she says, uh, you know, kind of what I noticed was they kind of got away from writing these books for, like, middle school-aged kids, and that Fran Tarkington book or any of the ones that I think a lot of us grew up reading. And for whatever reason, there's a lot for really young kids, and then there's adults, and they're kind of missing that that 100-page you know, really perfect for for a book report or or um, summer reading, and yeah, it's uh look, it's a fortnight world. These kids, um, <laughs> uh, their eyes glaze over, and so uh, trying to compete against Fortnite not easy. But we're going to give it a shot and maybe get a few of them to read some books. So far, it's gone pretty well, uh, and I think you know, look, these these guys, you you in in modern ways, you learn a lot about these athletes but you learn nothing in depth about them. You learn a lot of superficial Instagram and stuff like that, where um, there really are some incredible stories for, for all of these people. And, and the focus of the book is, is look, it's inspiring. They're, they're role models. And it, a lot of it is what they were like when they were in middle school ages. Um, you know, yeah, Steph Curry looks like he's got it all together now, but back then he was too small. He wasn't, it was too small to be good at anything. Serena Williams, the greatest women's tennis player, when she's 11 years old, she's nobody. Her older sister is taking all of the shine. So things like that that, that are kind of universal and, and can, can teach you how they dealt with it and things like that can be really, I think, um, you know, uh, great for, for kids going through that at their own, in their own life. Um, I guess in terms of a writing style, is it is it difficult? You wrote wrote some amazing books about like the death of the BCS. You wrote a documentary on Heron Hernandez. How do you write? And I read the book and I enjoyed it. I picked up things that I learned about Steph Curry when I read that book. How is do you write? How do you go about writing for middle age as opposed to writing for uh, adults when you know for your normal when you normally write for Yahoo? Well, I, I, I have a group that reads it, of kids, uh, to help, and they, you know, I, I tell them it's okay to tell me what's wrong. I, my feelings won't be hurt. Um, <laughs> but if there's a word you don't understand, that's okay. Point that out. Don't pretend you do. So uh, you try to write for the, the proper write, uh, proper reading level, and we have really good editors at, at, at Holt and McMillan um, that, that help out with that. So, But I, I really think it's about kind of more of a, a – creating a narrative and creating a story um, opposed to necessarily just, it's not just facts over and over and over. I'll go in more in depth on, on certain things I find that I think kids will find interesting. I think if you, if you did read the Curry book, I always remember the story where 
the, the Curry brothers, the whole family moved to Toronto because Del Curry was going to play for the Raptors, and um, they they uh, they went to this uh, really small Christian school in in Toronto, and the the basketball team and the the middle school basketball team had lost every game the year before. And then all of a sudden they got Steph and Seth Curry, who are now going to match up in the Western Conference Finals. They joined the team, and um, then they immediately win every single game and win the league championship, of course. And uh, th- talking to the, the kids on the, who were on the team who are now adults about what it was like with, with that and, and kind of that whole story, I just thought it was like a great um, kind of Disney movie-type story of like what if the worst team in the league be, you know, gets two NBA players to join it. And... Um, you know, so things like that that I think kids would be fascinated. Like, that's a story. Every kid who's read that book loves that story where, you know, as an adult, that might be one paragraph in a Steph Curry biography or something like that, whereas kids are just fascinated by that. So, again, a lot of it's about, um, you know, what, what kids care about at the middle school. We have to kind of hook these kids on stories that are a little different nowadays, and, and it can't just be, you know, look, here's a – Here's basically a Wikipedia page of facts in in a book. It's it's what are the what are the stories that relate to them? Well, I mean, you saw Steph Curry's amazing performance on Friday, uh, Friday night, and I think people forget that when he went to the Warriors, it just seems like oh, well, he walked in the Warriors, they was drafted in the top ten pick, everything went great. I mean, you highlight in the book that it was an adjustment that he was with Don Nelson and Keith Smart, and people didn't really know how to use him the right way. It wasn't really until Kerr came, even Mark Jackson started using him correctly. But I mean, he went through a bunch of coaches, and it wasn't so easy those first years in Golden State, and plus he had all those injuries. First three years really didn't go very well for him at Golden State. Um, he's had to transition everywhere he's gone. Uh, his first year at Davidson was he was very good, um, but he wasn't what he became as a sophomore. Uh, and the same in high school, he had kind of the similar story. So, yeah, it, it took a while for for Golden State to figure out what they had. And I think it's really people talk about oh, Golden State's this dynasty, and you know they added Kevin Durant, and that's not fair. The reason they were able to add Kevin Durant was because they drafted Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, mm-hmm. and, and Draymond Green in the second round with Draymond, but three draft picks that were not number one picks, and then learned how to build a team around them uh, because all three of them are very unique talents. They don't just fit into the, this guy will be good. He has this skill set. They all are different types of players, and when you put them all together, that's what made Golden State so good, and, and we do go into that, that a lot about the book. And it's interesting to note, I know you tweeted this or retweeted this, this quote, uh, comment, that the four best players in the Western Conference Finals right now, um, excluding Kevin Durant because he's hurt for the first game or two, are from Weber State, Washington State, Davidson, and Lehigh. We're not talking about the power conferences between Lillard, McCollum, Thompson, and Curry. Those are four schools that are not in the, you know, the, the Final Four every year. No, and it's uh, they all stayed at least three years of, of college. And uh, if you add um, Draymond Green did go to Michigan State, but he he stayed three years of college. So it's interesting. The one-and-done players and the one-and-done talents get the most attention, particularly at draft time. But in terms of a, a development of a full game, uh, sometimes it takes a few years, and sometimes you're better off by going to the smaller school and getting those reps, getting those those extra practices, being you know b- being part of a team that builds and gets better in off seasons, and it's not just 
hey, this is basically like an AAU team that you're in and out, and you're getting a new new team every year, plug and play. Uh, and I think you kind of see that in the way these guys have developed because all four of those players, uh, obviously Durant's a whole different animal, but the, the, the other four guys are, are, are incredible, uh, have developed into incredible talent. So it's, a, it's sort of a, uh, not, not the way that gets the most hype on how to build an NFL, an NBA team, sorry. We're talking to Dan Wetzel, who has a series of books called uh, called Epic Athletes, and they're for middle age, middle school kids. Uh, Steph Curry's the book I'm looking at. Alex Morgan, Serena Williams, uh, really, really tremendous books, and I think it's imperative that kids read. So I think it's great, and it's also you're writing on interesting topics, not like I guess topics that are boring, things that they are interested <laughs> in. But I guess as as being probably the one of the most foremost college basketball experts in the world, I could I would love to ask you about what you think about. I mean, this is there's things when you hear when it comes across breaking news and you're like, what? And then you text it to someone and they go, no, you're kidding me. I mean, that we had one of those today. John Beeline from Michigan going to the Cleveland Cavaliers, a 67 year old coach uh, leaving Michigan is one of the top programs in the country to coach probably one of the worst basketball teams. Uh, give us your thoughts about that and, and, and your knowledge. I mean, what's your what's your insight into into that move? Well, you know, I think John Beeline started as a JV coach in uh, Western New York and then coached junior college, division three, division two, and then, you know, some lower level division one until, until he ended up at Michigan in West Virginia and in Michigan. But he, and, and so I think he's always, he's always been a coach's kind of coach. He's not a recruiter. He's never, never had these great top 10 players. And I think the opportunity for him to, test himself at the highest level in the NBA uh, has great appeal. I also think anytime you can get away from recruiting and all that goes into that, um, Beeline's known for extremely ethical behavior on the recruiting trail, which is probably why he rarely signs great players, uh, at least great high school recruits that become <laughs> great players. And so it's a little sad for college basketball that I think they kind of run some of these guys out. Um, but I really just think this is a guy who, who's done everything He's never won the national title, but he's played in two national championship games. And so this is a chance to try something different. And um, for the Cavs, you know, I think he's a guy that even if they don't win a lot in the next two or three years, they look and say, hey, look, our young players are going to be better off learning from him. Um, and then there's this X factor where tomorrow night we get the, the draft lottery. And he could, he could be coaching Zion Williamson. Now, if the Cavs got the number one pick, maybe this job's more attractive to to current NBA coaches. But they went with uh, with Beeline, and so it could be really interesting. He could be sitting there tomorrow night saying, "Hey, I got a great job. Now I've got the number one pick. I'm going to get Zion. We'll be attractive to free agents now." Or they could end up with a sixth pick, and he he's got a much different scenario staring at him. <laughs> well, I agree with you. I mean, these teams are so young. I mean, look at Colin Sexton. I mean, he's coaching nineteen, twenty year old players. People say, well, he's not going to be used to these NBA players. Well, it's not going to. His team's not full of thirty two year old players. They're they're like his age of his call. I mean, his. I think someone showed a stat where his Michigan team could be older than most of the Cavalier team is. <laughs> so it's not like at least, he's... Uh, at least some of them. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Colin Sexton will be uh, basically a sophomore in college next year. So, and you were like the Nostradamus, I guess, on college basketball. I mean, you were writing about the influence of shoe deals and shoe contracts and everything way before anyone else was. And now we have the whole big scandals that came out. Um, and, you know, as, I guess one of the, the most ironic things is when Kansas says they're a victim uh, of this whole shoe situation, but then they sign a $200 million deal, as you, as you had tweeted out. Right. 
Um, what's your take in terms of where's, where's college basketball going to go from this? I mean, as someone who's been talking about this for years about the influence of shoe contracts and, and, and just all this going on, where do you think college basketball goes from here? Uh, you know, there's just, there's not a, 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 until they reform the rules and change the rules, um, you know, the, I don't know. I mean, nothing's really going to change the, the the scandal is in the rules, really. Um, you know, the idea of amateurism to me is just sort of, it's, it's outdated. The Olympics got rid of it back in the 80s. Um, there's a better way to set up this system than, than what they have right now. And as long as they have these rules and where you're saying, you know, a kid can't take anything from a shoe company, but we can take $200 million, uh, it, it's just, it's really hard to, to expect uh, anything to be different. You know, we've had these federal trials, but basically all they did was nab a couple low-level people. Um, nothing else in the system has changed. When you talk to college coaches, nothing's changed at all right now in the practice of how it works. And so uh, I don't really think a whole lot's going to change, unfortunately, until the appetite comes to, uh, to, to kind of share the wealth or rewrite the rules to where it's not as uh, draconian for, for kids to take money. There's always going to be – the NCAA creates this underground uh, that, that really isn't necessary. And as the author of the book, The Death of the BCS, <laughs> I guess the question would be, I, I wanted to know in terms of, do you, we have now have this 14 playoffs that's been going on for a number of years. College football is as is entertaining, as enthusiastic as maybe it's ever been. Um, what, where do you see it going from here in terms of, do you think that the playoff will be expanded or do you think it's going to stay at the four teams for the foreseeable future? You know, I think for a little bit longer it'll be four. Eventually it's going to get to eight. And, um, you know, I think that's probably the right thing with five conference champions get in and, and three at-larges. Um, I'd like to see, you know, some different reform, getting rid of maybe the conference championship games to shorten the season a little bit for players. But, um, you know, I think the four has been better than, than two. But it is always a poorly designed idea when you have four. Uh, it was a compromise that was unnecessary and they just weren't ready to make a, a system that will really work. And eight will work a, a lot better. There'll be a lot more access to it. It'll be more exciting and more money, um, more opportunity and all that. So, uh, you know, college sports moves very, very slow because there's a lot of people who are in charge that are making a lot of money, and there's not a lot of incentive to it. There's also no one person in charge, uh, you know, the way you have a commissioner or something like that in a, in a league. So, Everything moves slowly with college sports, and, and the, the football playoff is maybe the greatest example of that. And we're talking to Dan, uh, Dan Wetzel, who's author of uh, and Yahoo Sports, but also the Epic Athlete series. And I think the, you're having Tom Brady as your next – is that coming out in August, the Tom Brady book? Yep. Tom Brady and Serena Williams be out this summer. <laughs> Amazing. Well, too – and I guess, I mean – in terms of writing about Tom Brady, in terms of what he's had to, I mean, it's, it's very similar to Steph Curry in terms of his, the overall skill level when, when, you know, being overlooked and overlooked time and time again and just beating all the odds. Uh, what were some of the takeaways you got from just starting to write about Tom Brady and, and things that impressed you most about him? You know, Tom was interesting in a lot of ways. One, uh, his older sisters were all phenomenal athletes. And when he was a little kid in um, – in uh, San Mateo, California, he was, uh, it was always like, oh, you're, you're so-and-so's little brother. Uh, and it took a long time for him to become his own. Uh, they became Tom Brady's brother. <laughs> uh, another one was his, friend, 
his freshman year of high school, he was the backup quarterback on his freshman football team. That football team did not score an offensive touchdown the whole year. They lost every game. <laughs> uh, they might have tied one. I can't remember, but it was something like that. And he still was the backup. He couldn't get in a game. He never threw a pass. <laughs> the whole year he sat on the bench as a freshman in high school. Then he got the starting job on the JV because the freshman QB who had beaten him out, he quit to play basketball because he said, I'm not any good at football because we didn't score a touchdown. So basketball is my sport. I'm going to play that. So Tom only got the sophomore, the JV job then. This is the greatest quarterback in the history of football. Could not get off the bench as a freshman, right? Could not get off a bench. Now, he's a very good athlete. He was a, He eventually was drafted by the, the Montreal Expos as a baseball player, and he a, was a, an excellent golfer. But in terms of football, um, he... He was uh, literally, you know, you just can't imagine playing freshman football with this guy and going, oh, that kid who was the backup that stunk, he ended up winning six Super Bowls. So, again, there's so much in these books about perseverance. And you look now and you go, God, I could never be Tom Brady. Well, you know, I'm not going to say you're going to be Tom Brady. But he kept working, and, and he became the best he could be. And you can keep working and not give up just because freshman football isn't going so well. And and I think, you know, the, the best part of really researching and writing and then seeing people read this book is those lessons that kids take from it. You but, know, I just ahead. want to add one more point. These JV basketball coaches, I mean, Steph Curry was on his JV basketball team. Michael Jordan was on his JV basketball team. I think some yep. of these JV coaches. John some, Morant uh, was noticed playing in the background of AAU yeah, games. <laughs> a lot of these coaches had some great players on them. But go ahead, Mike. No, you know, they I really just... did. Don't, the JV, don't sleep on the JV. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, I got to be, you know, now everything in sports is like, I got to be the best 14-year-old and what's my ranking and, you know, all this stuff like, like you were saying before, you know, these top four players in the Western Conference right now, Durant not not included, but, you know, it, it, it's okay. It's, it's, not a, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon, and you have to keep getting better. You have to keep working. You have to be dedicated. Um, you know, the level of work that Tom put in through the years, and then he goes to Michigan, so obviously a great player to get recruited to Michigan, but he spent the first two years, he redshirted, he didn't play as a – freshman as a sophomore he barely played his dad wanted him to transfer and go back to california and find a school that'll play him and tom said i'm going to stick it out i'm going to prove i'm going to prove to everyone here i deserve it and you know there's there's just some great lessons that these guys have uh these guys can impart you know dan the next uh, part in your series epic athletes alex morgan uh supposed to come out tomorrow i don't think many Americans realize how good the women's national team is and how we should be embracing this. And the Women's World Cup um, kicks off in less than a month. I'm super excited about this. Is there another team in sports? I think Golden State might be the next closest. That, to me, is a win or bust. I feel like the U.S. women's national team has to win every World Cup they're in, and I'm really excited for this one. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. And, you know, and just on our back thing, Alex Morgan was cut from a travel team when she was 13 also. See? Go figure. Um, yeah, so I guess this is the theory. Although no one ever said LeBron was bad. So uh, we do have a LeBron <laughs> book coming out. And Lionel Messi was unbelievable as a six-year-old. So um, it, some, of them, some of them are good. Some of them are. Uh, everyone saw LeBron coming pretty early. But, um, yeah, you know, I agree. The women's soccer team, you've got to win. I mean that's that's what they've that's what they've created, which is great. You know, um, I love it, and I love that these are female athletes that embrace this and they want that pressure. 
Uh, they don't want to be treated with kid gloves. Uh, let's do this, and we're the best. We should win it. Uh, it's not going to be easy. Uh, women, women here to play around the world have come a long way, so that that gap has closed a lot. But um, it is. It's winter bus, but it'll be a it'll be a huge deal um, once they get going. You know, the TV ratings on the last World Cup. I mean, they hit fifty million, sixty million people watching those last couple games. So uh, I also think it's a it's a team America really gets behind. It's just a team everyone has fun with and everyone roots for um, and, and everyone can be proud of. And I know, obviously, it's not just young women, but, uh, but young, you know, everybody gets into it. But we did also make a point in this book series to try to, you know, some of the ones I think when we all grew up, it was all a lot of baseball and football and, and just men. And, and uh, we're doing a lot of women, women athletes, uh, a lot of soccer, some of the different sports that, that kids are really interested today because there's a lot of um, it's not just boys who who are sports fans anymore. Uh, it's uh, you know tons and tons and tons of girls are sports fans also, and so the, there's books for for both boys and girls can learn from Alex Morgan, and I think enjoy that story. It, the Alex Morgan book's a really fun read. And we can learn from you, too. It's Dan Wetzel. Don't miss his Epic Athlete Series out now, continuing to roll out also Death to the BCS. Dan Wetzel from Yahoo. Thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. It's the True Oldies Channel. Yeah, no, listen, you're perfect. We love you. Uh, 742 Iron Sports, the True Oldies Channel. Iron, I'm going to get you really into women's soccer. Once, uh, once this thing starts about, uh, what is it, three weeks from now? So you better get ready for that. Um, we've got so much to get to before Mike Iavarone joins us in just eight minutes. Let's go back to Nuggets Blazers. Um, this ended up being a, a pretty, pretty good series down the stretch, and, and I'm kind of excited. I think Portland may have a chance here against Golden State. I know I'm in the minority, but what are you thinking here? Um. Just before we get to the Vegas Blazers, I did want to just cover with, sure. with, with the final game, the game six that we didn't get to in terms of where I felt at the end, it was just Curry, zero points the whole first half. Weird. 33 in the second half. Uh, the fact that there was a tie game uh, at halftime and you're like, whatever. And, and an interesting stat is that Steph Curry went to the court the night before and wanted to play Toyota Center, just practice, reserved it. Chris Paul heard that he was practicing, came down, and threw him off the court. And Curry said, you take half, I take half. He goes, that's not good enough. You're off the court. And so after, they, hear this. after they won the game, Curry was screaming, I'm off the court now. You could have the court. It's all yours. <laughs> but it was interesting at the end of the game. First of all, Looney played great. The rebounding that he got from the, the Warriors. Iguodala was making uh, great plays the whole way down the, through the rest of the whole fourth quarter and the entire game. But, I mean, they had, no one scored in the game from like 643 to 342 because suddenly the Warriors' defense was so great. And Harden had two gigantic misses at that time. And uh, Curry then made a huge three. Curry made a driving layup. He made another three, uh, and Harden had two turnovers. He had four turnovers in the last four minutes of the game, and then Clay drained that three at the end of the mm-hmm. game. It was just unbelievable. But to see that how Curry was able to come on, and then and at the end of the game, people were sort of saying, "Well, he he had a lot of his points in at shooting free throws." Well, we saw Kawhi Leonard missed free throws. All these teams had missed free throws. He made eight for eight when it counted at the end of the game. So a major win, tremendous, and it was it was terrible for Harden. We talked about it earlier, but we're going to go on to yeah. Now they're going to face Portland. And this is probably the most anticlimactic Western Conference Finals in a decade. Nobody expected to see Portland here. Nobody would have expected to see the Nuggets here either. So it doesn't matter either way. But I think this is going to be a little bit of a tougher series than than at least Vegas thinks. So first, let's go back. And how did the Blazers do this? Well, first of all, they lost... 
the Tuesdays and Thursday games were both blowouts. It, uh, Port Denver, uh, 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 Denver won by thirty mm-hmm. the first game, and then Portland came back at home and then won. But then they uh, it, it blew them, it blew Denver out. Then they come on Sunday for a game seven, and Denver had the best home record in in basketball. They had a seventeen point lead, and Denver's something great. Jokic. Totally sold me. I like Denver a lot. They're very young. They're very good. Jokic is totally a great player. He's, he's ridiculously good. He's young. Yeah. He's twenty three years Second old. Second round draft pick. Too. He is going to be fantastic. And uh, but then and Lillard was terrible. Lillard was three for seventeen for the game, two for nine from threes. But CJ McCollum came in, scored thirty seven mm-hmm. points, draining threes uh, all over the place, and just and he also made some blocks. And I, I loved his last two points that he made when he had to win the game. He had two baskets, and they were very Michael Jordan like foul line. Come fake, fake, back up a little <laughs> bit. Sixteen foot jumper. That was like Michael Jordan against uh, Ryan, Ru- Ryan Russell in the uh, NBA Finals against Utah. But Portland's dangerous. They've lost Nurkic, their center, but they have two guards. I think they're an easier matchup for Golden State. I think that Jokic would have been presented some problems. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a better for them uh, in terms of that. And there's a chance that Cousins, Good point with the Cousins, lack of and height. Durant could come back. But I do think that Portland. I look. I think Warriors are going to win in five, but. Portland's dangerous. Lillard's fantastic. McCollum is fantastic, and they have some interesting role players. But I thought Joker pro- provided sort of would would a, I don't know who would have matched up with Joker because he's so big and strong. And boy, Denver they, they can't be dissatisfied. They were the number two seed. They learned a lot, and next year they could come back and be one of the favorites. They have to be excited about what they've achieved up to this point. And Portland was a very good team. They had no answer for Lillard for most of the series, and McCollum down the stretch was just really, really good. There was nothing they were going to do to stop them. We got about uh, four minutes or so until we were joined by Mike Iavarone, former owner of Big Brown. He gives some ridiculously accurate uh, horse racing picks on this show, so you got to stick around for his preakness bet. Um, you want to talk a little Buck Celtics here? Yeah, let's go. Let's go to the Buck Celtics. Yeah, I mean this was another series where. I, I was just really let down all around, and I think Kyrie's bags were packed before game four, uh, before that fourth game is over. I, I, well, first of all, they won. Remember, Boston won the first game of the series, but the next three were complete blowouts. Uh, Kyrie in, in the in the Monday night's game shot seven for twenty two, one for seven uh, from the from the three. And he said he should have shot 30 times. And he's complaining. And his, the press conferences, his press conference is worse than the games. Because then he lost. And then they lost 116-91. Irving was 6 for 21, 1 for 7 on threes, 15 points, 1 assist. It's not just he didn't score. George Hill, we're not talking about, I mean, they, they were just driving past him. And, and the whole team was not, none, not interested. Uh, Boston kept saying, don't worry. When the, when the playoffs come, we're going to get our act together. They never got their act together. Uh, Tatum, Brown, Horford, uh, t- they were, you know, and Rozier and Morris carried the team last year. Uh, they bring in Hayward and they bring in Irving because Irving was hurt for the playoffs. And this year has been a disaster. It's all on Kyrie. I would never want him on my team. I, I think he is a total. His attitude is terrible. His play, he is overrated as a player. And he just brings everyone down. He is just not a good. And and I was really impressed with Milwaukee. Milwaukee saw a team that was weak, that had problems, and just took total advantage. And Giannis is a right. great superstar. They run plays. They run motion. They have enough shooters on their team. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon came back, uh, one of their starting guards. And you put him and Hill and Bledsoe tremendous and Middleton is draining from the outside and Giannis knows what they're doing I I was very impressed I like Milwaukee when the year started I didn't pick them I thought Toronto was the better team going into this and I but I've changed my mind I think Milwaukee is clearly I think Milwaukee's going to go to the finals they 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 are playing great and they play smart they blew out the Pistons they really have played 
uh, nine games and eight of them have been blowouts uh, in the playoffs so far. You know what? I, I disagree with you on the Portland and Golden State series because I do think that goes to six, maybe seven. I just got a feeling that Portland has some fight in them, but uh, I'm with you. I think Milwaukee is going to handle Toronto pretty easily. Maybe not five games, but I think it's it's like you said, they've been blowing teams out. when They're well, they're well coached. They have a good system. When they put that together, I don't think a one-man team in Kawhi Leonard is going to be able to beat them. Um, real quick, let's talk a little uh, Toronto and Sixers. What was going through your head on bounce one, two, three, four of, the, of that Kawhi shot? Well, Kawhi Leonard hit a shot at the end of the game. Now, first of all, people have to remember, he missed the free throw. Like, the, the, the end of the game was weird. He was, misses yeah. a free throw that if he would have made it, then they would have forced the Sixers to go drain a three. And then Jimmy Butler takes the rebound and dribbles it down and ties the game. Mm-hmm. So that was amazing. And then they run this play. It was huge. But it was a great play because it was over Embiid. It was over Simmons. Uh, so it was a very hard shot. And the fact that he's kneeling down and looking at it as it's bouncing around and then going in as a game winner. Just a tremendous, tremendous shot. And you watch, when I go to these practices before the game, the shoot-arounds or whatever they want to call them, practices, uh, they always end Curry, Durant, always lofting the ball, doing those lofts. Mm. And that's what Leonard said. Leonard said he saw Embiid coming. He saw Simmons coming. And he said, I knew I had to have this high loft on the ball and get the bounce. So it did work for him. And it, it was a great shot. Now, Beautiful Leonard, shot. It, if he would have missed it, they just would have went to overtime. Mm. It was a lot of pressure and it was a big shot. But I remember in 2001, Vince Carter missed a shot against Philadelphia. It was a game seven also. And that's when Iverson was able to go to the NBA finals. Um, and this reminded everyone talk about the Jordan's ELO shot when Michael Jordan in 1991 mm-hmm. beat ELO. But this was Leonard's worst game. He was shot. He was he was not playing well, um, trying to keep the team in the game. But Philadelphia at the end of the game, their problem was is they didn't put and the announcers made a big deal about it, but they didn't put Embiid in the post. Uh, they were just there was they had three shot clock violations in the last four minutes of the game. So they they had a chance to win this game. They they just were discombobulated. And Ben Simmons, who's supposed to be their point guard, can't take a shot and can't even pass the ball or handle the ball. So it was a, it's a really dysfunctional team. I don't know if this team's going to come back, but. Kawhi Leonard, it was funny, the rest of the Raptors were too, were afraid to touch mm. the ball, shoot the ball, or do anything. So it was a very interesting thing. Mike Iverone joins us in uh, just a second. I, we don't have Mike, Mike yet. We'll get uh, Mike Iverone on in just a moment. Ira, we didn't get your Magic Johnson story. And this is something that I wanted to hear about. So we'll see if we can get uh, Mike on the phone here in just a second. He's standing by. He is uh, Mike Iavarone, owner of Big Brown. Hopefully we'll have him in just a minute here on Ira on Sports. This is 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo alongside Ira. Had a great show um, so far tonight. And we're going to, um, again, try to get Mike on here. I got the number ready to go. But tell us the, the Magic Johnson story because this is something that – the things that happened to you, Ira, are just not normal. Well, I took a I, – I, this gives an impression in terms of this week you saw where the, where the, uh, uh, um, the Lakers hired a new head coach. And it was surprising that two weeks ago we talked how Mike, Magic Johnson had quit the team and mm-hmm. surprisingly had just left. And I was in the gym that I work out in when I'm in L.A. And I was – done with the spin class I sit down and I accidentally sat in somebody's uh I sat in I sat in somebody's chair and I realized that they were working out and it was like such a and I, and then I look up and it was Magic Johnson and at first he looked really mean at me and he was upset but then he got he, he laughed and hit me on the head and later and you saw when Mike when Magic was walking around the gym he wasn't there's no entourage he was talking mm-hmm. to everybody people it's first time he was back in the gym like in a year and a half since he took the job and everybody was talking to him and asking him questions about the Lakers and he just was open he said look I'm glad I don't have the pressure I can be Magic I can this everything he said in the press conference I believe and at first when 
everybody quit, people say, oh, Magic's a quitter. But then you see all the dysfunction that the Lakers have. And you see what, how Magic likes to be walked around and know. I mean, that you sort of get the impression that's what he wanted to do, that, he, that Magic wanted to just not be part of a system where he has to report to a zillion different people and everybody else has their own things. So that would be the, that's the point. But it was, it was interesting that I just thought, and then afterwards I talked to him, I actually went up and talked to him, I bought him breakfast. And I said to him, <laughs> and, and I was talking about Michigan State. He loved talking about Michigan State. He, he loved love talking Michigan about college State. basketball. And it was really exciting. And, and he was very friendly and very nice. And the next day I saw him at the gym, he goes, I owe you for that lunch. I owe you for the breakfast, I mean. But I just thought that was the impression I got was that this is a person who is very just likes being Magic Johnson, loves talking to people, and he just wants to get back to that. And he'd rather just be at the gym working out, talking to people, rather than dealing with the dysfunction that the Lakers have. It's 100% the reason why I think Kobe Bryant is never going to take a position in the front office anywhere. He likes being Kobe Bryant. Um, he doesn't need the approval. And Magic, I think, is learning that too. Like, why do I need to deal with um, all of this mess around it and have to have all this pressure. Why not to show up to the games, be a legend, and get to talk to Ira about Michigan State sports? <laughs> um, Ira, I got to tell you, tomorrow night is the most excited I've been to be a Knicks fan since, I don't know, 1994. <laughs> so this is a big one. Tell us about how this draft lottery is going to shake out. Well, it, this year they're going to draw four picks. Every team, New York is 14%, Cleveland 14 Phoenix 14 on the way down. And... Everyone knows the first pick's going to be Zion Williamson, but also you can move up. I mean, it's happened in the past where teams that had, like right now, Lakers have a 2% chance. Miami has a 1% chance. But in 1993, the Magic won the lottery with a 1.5% chance when they, Chris Webber, when they got Chris Webber. In 2008, the Bulls won with a 1.7% chance to get Derrick Rose. And the Cavaliers won in 2014 with a 1.7% chance. So all the teams that didn't make the playoffs have a chance to get this. Some of these players or teams are protected in terms of where they fall in the lottery, but it's going to be really really interesting to see uh what who gets it because it, it matters if the knicks get zion williamson they might trade that to get anthony davis who knows but it's going to be zion williams don't let anyone else hear this could be somebody else it's clearly going to be him he's an immediate franchise changer even if he just sells you ten thousand jerseys on the first you know first minute he, he's going to be an impact player regardless of if he steps on the court for you or not so of course i think zion goes number one uh, as a knick fan i'm rooting for it hard we'll see what happens nhl real quick ira um we don't need to talk too much about this. We got the, the four best teams, I think, or the four teams that were playing as good as they could. Boston beat Columbus last night, and they're going to be really tough to beat down the stretch. I had said I really like San Jose, and now here they are um, already up a game on St. Louis. They got one game to go. They got another game tonight at 9 o'clock. The biggest story right now, though, in hockey, I don't know if you've heard about this, is the draft. There's a guy named Jack Hughes who is a consensus number one. He's the next Sidney Crosby. Or maybe more like Connor McDavid because he's 5'10", and that's like, this is a Kyler Murray 5'10", 165 pounds, plays center. He was the consensus number one. There's a guy named Capo Caco. He's a, a Finnish winger who is now just, he was the consensus number two, and he's destroying the worlds right now. So the, the Devils and the Knicks are going to have a serious, uh, the Devils and the Rangers are going to have a serious choice about what they want to do um, going forward here with this. So it, it's going to be tough to see what happens as far as the NHL goes, but I, I really don't know what's going to happen. And I, I'm set, you know, that the Rangers have the second pick. 
So I'm all about them taking him if they need to. But now it's looking like maybe Capo might go number one to the Devils. We'll see what happens there. It's Iron Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. It's 7.56. I'm Mike Balsamo. Mike Ivarone is uh, was having some phone issues, but he's getting on the line with us um, as we speak. So we'll have him in just a second. Ira, um, I'm really excited for this because Beth Page is here. And we'll have Eve Arone and just uh, do we have Mike Eve Arone on it? We do not. <laughs> Try that one again. Uh, we'll, we'll tell our scooter, our board operator. Um, Beth Page Black. It's famed for being the hardest course in the world, the hardest course in America. And here we go. You've been there before. It's a very difficult walk. So, what are you expecting from these golfers in Beth Page? Um, I was there in 2009, and it was the. First of all, it is. It was so cold and so rainy. They started the final it round at like seven o'clock at night. It was an. It was amazing, and and in terms of when they started it, um, and Lucas Glover won. Tiger won on Beth. This was the U.S. Open. Tiger won in two thousand two, and he also finished in the top six in two thousand nine. So people feel he can play this course. He's done well mm. on this course before. Um, Tiger. You know, from winning the Masters, coming here, it just came out that Justin Thomas pulled out of it, so he's not going to be in the in, wrist the injury, I believe. Uh, yeah. Wrist injury to come in, and uh, but and Brooks won it last year. But this is it's really interesting. You know, when I was reading the history of the PGA Championships, it was run, it was started by the pros because it used to be the tournaments for for the amateurs were viewed as that great that they were the amateur golfers were like, and the pros wanted to have like their own tournament, mm -hmm. and they're like, we're going to have it. So if you look, there's no like in the Masters, they say, oh, the low amateur, this low amateur. You don't, no amateurs are invited to this. You have to actually qualify to go in, mm -hmm. and I think that's pretty neat about how this. And also, it was started by Robert Wanamaker, and you win the Wanamaker Trophy, which is the most expensive trophy I think given in sports, mm -hmm. even more. And you only get to keep it for a year and then give it back. But uh, it's a it, for it's weird that it's coming up. People don't realize what it is. It used to be in August, but because they wanted to, to shorten the season, had the FedEx playoffs in August, and now I think. It, but I think everyone's happy. Tiger won the Masters. You don't have to wait two months for the U.S. Open. We got another major a month later. We get another we get the Brit the u.s open then we get the british open so it's perfect you know i all my friend you know i'm from new york and i've been to beth page uh, countless times all my friends who were out there today were not so happy with the weather and the chilliness tiger was wearing a beanie and a turtleneck so i think that would be the one draw to being in new york in may maybe you don't get the best weather but yeah, other other than that it works out perfectly i do think we have mike Ivarone on now he's the uh, owner of big brown he's been a legend on this show i run sports mike you've done an amazing job of handing out winners on on this show and I got to tell you, before the interference or whatever you want to call it, I felt like your pick from this show, the, the long shot, long range toddy, had a great chance to take down the uh, Kentucky Derby before that happened. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was a very interesting top of the stretch run from the top of the stretch of the lane. I was actually watching it with Ira. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure if he would have won the race anyway, but he certainly was not in the position I thought he was going to be. I kind of thought they would be coming from behind. Instead, they had him up on the lead. But more importantly, fun fact, uh, I just heard you guys talking about Beth Page. I grew up in Beth Page, and I'm in Beth Page right now. And the weather is bad. Just FYI. <laughs> I'm more of a, a Suffolk County guy, but I, I made it out to Beth Page when I could. Um, moving on with, with the Preakness. You know, Mike, one of the weird things to me, obviously, is Country House not running. I believe it's the first time in 23 years uh, since Grindstone that a winner won't run. To me, though, it, it's not an injury. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe I'm just speculating, but I feel like this is Country House's owners saying, we don't want to finish 6th or 7th in the Preakness here and completely ruin our, our, breeding, um, you know, our breeding leverage. They're a Kentucky Derby winner. 
and they could pretty much retire him now out to stud and make a ton of money. And I feel like the sport's kind of gone that way, breeding over wins. And it's a little disappointing for me. Am I wrong with thinking this? And maybe Country House really is just injured? Or how are you taking this? No, I'm, I'm very, very disappointed in the, in the direction in which the sport has gone. Uh, when I grew up watching horse racing, you know, I grew up to the easy goers, Sunday Collins. I grew up to the to the minute races between the two best horses in the world. And, and what was so great about racing back then was that the Triple Crown, the, the regular people took sides. They each had their horse. They each got to, you know, to understand the racing and, and, and find the horse that they really liked, and they would run against the better ones. Here, what's happening now is you're getting 20 run in the, in the derby. People are starting to hear the 20 names, and then they don't see them again. And they some of these horses don't even run back in any, any of the Triple Crown races. They wait for the Travers. Nobody watches the Travers that does watch the Triple Crown, unfortunately. <laughs> so the race is, you know, racing game is actually killing itself right now. And then the way the trainers are playing this, uh, you know, when they talk about the best interest in the horse, I don't buy any of that stuff. You know, the, the, the Derby winner most of the time wins the Freakness if he's a good horse. So the two weeks is not the problem. It's, it's just, it's super disappointing to see that none of the first four finishers are even looking at the Triple Crown right now. Um, Mike, the question I have would be is improbable doesn't run in, I mean, runs well in the Kentucky Derby, but, but not where, you know, finishing in, in fourth place, but, or, but where do you see as, as a favorite? Is it, is it a favorite? Is it a true favorite for the Preakness or is it sort of a fake favorite for the Preakness? I think with Mike, especially the horses had a different rider three races in a row. I, I think now with Mike Smith on, I think Mike's going to put him in the race. I, I think what's been going on is they've been really taking the source off the pace. And he's a big, long-starting horse with a high cruising speed. And I think if you get him involved early, he's a tough horse to run past. And my instincts tell me, of course, the push position is going to matter. But I, my instincts tell me that they're going to try to have him either right on the lead or just off the lead. I think the same thing is going to go with um, uh, Cassie's horse, Will Will, Will Will. I get his name mixed up all the time. I think they're going to try to put those two horses in the race early. I think that uh, those those two horses to me look like they're the best. I think I think Improbable's real. So Improbable was real, War Will's real. And what about Always Mining? I mean, this is a horse that has won six straight late races at Laurel uh, with, with against bad competition, but everyone says it's super fast. And I see some people picking uh, Always Mining to to win, but it, it's just ha- has not gone against competition at all in terms of right where it's been running it's the last six races. Yeah, I'd be shocked if that horse wins. I mean, literally, I'd be shocked. That horse is not in the in the world of of the two horses that come out of the Derby. Um, I, I just could not see this. So, if you like Improbable and War Will, what other horse would you put with that in terms of uh, an exacta? Maybe win, win, win. You know, I I gotta be honest. The race is kind of a joke. It, yeah, it really it is. is. It's 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 one of the worst preaches I've seen in in years. Uh, there's there's not one horse that I'm going to say to myself that I'm going to take my mayor's friend to, but this is over with. Uh, I, I just, I don't like it. I, I think that um, improbable, probably if he gets any kind of decent trip, should, should beat these horses pretty easy. Um, I'm interested to see how War Will runs back, but other than those two, maybe win, 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 you know, to round it out. But I don't like any of these new horses, and I don't even know what's going to happen to Belmont. I just, I, this is a very odd, it's a very odd year. That's the best way I can put it. 
Well, Mike, thanks a lot for coming in. I really appreciate you uh, giving us your insight. I mean, you were the one who picked Justify. I mean, that's the one thing is that there's no Justifies. You said when you, we had you on a few weeks ago, you said there's no Justify in this group, and I think you were right about that. Uh, but thanks again for coming on and giving us your, uh, your uh, insight into, into the Preakness. No problem. Thanks for having me. Always love having uh, Mike Iavarone on this show because he makes us money, and that's always always exciting. I agree with him. I think this is a very weird Preakness field, and you know they always do this where they're going to throw in a bunch of local horses, so it's horses that run in the Baltimore area. I don't really like any of them. I think the odds will be inflated. I think you're probably right, sticking with improbable here and uh, trying to just make some money, maybe wheeling him on top, but we'll see what happens with that. Ira, it's funny that Mike's from Bethpage. A Long Island guy like me, you're a Pennsylvania guy, but do you want to touch on a little bit more about what's ha- going to happen at the Black here uh, before we move on? Yeah, I mean it, it. It's a it's a very interesting course. It's it's a public course, so it's not a, and so that makes it has that type of feel where it's not a. Th- th- they don't not, take tea times either. Yeah, <laughs> you have and, to just show up, right? And it's it's <laughs> ranked one of the 26 best courses in the world. It's the number six public course in the world, or in the United States at least, and the sixth best and six and also the six toughest courses in the world. Um, I, the year that Tiger won in 2002, he won the Masters. Uh, he won. He actually won the Masters earlier in the year, mm. which is pretty neat. And he beat Phil. So what about what that would be? And it was like I was looking at it. It was like in the third day it was Tiger and Sergio, and then in the fourth day it was Tiger and Phil. So what a great leader group that was Weird, in terms yeah. of what it was. But and then in 2009 when he played Beth Page, he shot a 74 the first day. So he was totally out of his ten shots back. But then he shot a 69, 68, and 69. So if you could look at those eight rounds at Beth Page, he shot under par. Uh, 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 seven of the eight rounds. Not easy to do at that track. And it, it, I and I know that's like we're saying what he did in two thousand two, two thousand nine is a different Tiger. But he seems comfortable. He did not has not played. If you said, oh, what has Tiger done since the Masters? He purposely hasn't played <laughs> since the Masters. And I think he's. And they said, well, maybe he's he's hurt. He's it. I think he de- doesn't feel like he needs to play. And I think everything is about these majors right now. And I think he's especially with them go. all grouped up like this. With it all grouped, there's no like Brooks Kepka today last week played at the Byron Nelson in Texas. We had to play almost 36 holes of golf on Sunday. Is that going to be great preparation no. to come in? You're playing in Texas when it's 100 degrees and then you're coming and playing 36 holes and then you're going to the... I just don't... Whereas Tiger was out here just practicing. He's staying on his yacht. I heard his yacht's docked in Huntington <laughs> somewhere and uh, and he's taking it I easy. I didn't even know they could fit yachts in Huntington. I, I, no, I, I wouldn't I heard be surprised. That yacht, that's where he is. I'm but, sure they can. But it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see and, and then of course like Rory's... I mean, we, what do we love, we love about golf is you have guys like Phil and Tiger and the... And, and, who are supposedly the old timers, whatever, that are playing well. And then you have the Dustin Johnsons. And then look at the favorites that the odds are Tigers at nine to one, Dustin Johnson nine to one, Kepka's ten to one, Rory's eleven to one, Justin Rose sixteen to one, and Ricky Fowler twenty to one. So and Molinari's there at twenty one. So he's playing with Kepka and Molinari. So that's a great leader group. I'll be there I'll be there on Thursday and Friday, at least we're following it. And that'll be fun. But, what are you gonna do? Base your Saturday, Sunday on what happens? Well, I'll just wherever Tiger is. At the, I don't. Not go, I won't go on Saturday if Tiger doesn't make the cut. But it's interesting. I mean, the other thing is that Tiger's not going to be playing much. I mean, he plays them. He's going to be off next week after the PGA. Then he plays the Memorial. Then he's going to take off the next week, play the U.S. Open, and probably take a month off for the British Open, play the World Golf Championship, three FedEx events. That's only seven more tournaments, and mm. that's the year for him. Yeah. So if you want to watch Tiger play, it's not like he's playing every week right. because he's trying. He doesn't want. He doesn't like to play back-to-back weeks before majors. And and you can see how hard these majors are. And look, it, it's worked well for him. He's won 15 majors, so it's, uh, and if he gets to 16, 
Oh my gosh. I mean, that's going to be... <laughs> if he wins at Bethpage, con- consecutive majors, within what, five weeks of each other? It's going to make people start getting really excited. Well, people, and also I think people make the comment about Jack Nicholas, and they're saying, "Oh, Jack Nicholas will be all nervous." I think Jack Nicholas would love his his record to be broken. I, I think, think so that too. He think I, first of all, it has brought so much notoriety to his record. If everyone was at like six wins and seven wins, and nobody was challenging eighteen, I mean, everyone says eighteen, Jack Nicholas. And I think the fact that Tiger, first of all, I think he respects Tiger as a player. I think he knows Tiger so great. He loves the fact that Tiger has been as complimentary. Always plays his tournament. Always talks about it. Always says great things about him I, I mean I don't think Jack Nicholas is like rooting against Tiger like I think no. he likes the fact that he wants to see this I mean he knows eventually I mean it's not going to records always fall but I think he enjoys this and it also brings him so much notoriety as the one who had the record so I think it's very good but it'll be, it's going to be exciting this weekend to watch this before we wrap this up uh, UFC it was another good weekend a lot of big slams too and uh, what did you take away um, I watched that on ESPN Plus, so it's easy to watch these matches. You can't watch them on cable, but um, Anderson Silva is the the all time great, and he had his leg uh, kicked again and lost, and and his vote is, and it's weird that you know he he had won sixteen straight times, but now he's lost two in a row. Um, and then uh, uh, in the women's uh, match, which was the headline, which I was surprised they made the headline, the Brazilian Namajunas beat uh, the champion. Uh, that was a violent ending of the match. <laughs> I was shocked with that. And, and being in Brazil, talk about the anti-Houston uh, fans. The fans were very into it, screaming, yelling. It was a very, it was a lot of exciting. And then on tennis, uh, Djokovic won the Madrid Open over Tsitsipas, uh, who beat Nadal in the semifinals. And in a couple of weeks, the French Open comes, which will be great. And Djokovic scaring up to... Uh, when his, uh, the second he already won the Australian Open. So he's going like Tiger is for the second major. We are way over on our time, but it's always a good show. Got to thank so much Dan Wetzel of uh, Yahoo Sports for stopping by. Follow him at Dan Wetzel. Also, Ira's going to be, I guess you're shipping out ASAP to get up to New York to Bethpage. Follow Ira. It's at Iron Sports on Instagram to keep up with everything happening at Bethpage Black. Also, Mike Iavarone, our uh, expert horse handicapper, for stopping by as well. It's Iron Sports. We'll talk next Monday night here on the True Oldies Channel.